Well, good morning once again, everybody. Please take a seat. Get comfortable. We're glad you've joined with us again this morning. I'm going to go ahead and dismiss the kids to Children's Church. Um, they can go back to their classes, pre-K and kindergarten, and first through second grade classes. So you've been with us for any time at all recently, you know that we're in the Ten Commandments. We've been parked there for the last six weeks or so. We've just finished the first five of those commandments, and now we're, we're heading toward the second half of those commandments, starting with the Sixth Commandment this morning. So go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It's a very small verse, but we're going to unpack a lot there this morning. I'm going to read it this morning, starting in verse 1, where we've been so far up to um, verse 13. So hear the word of the Lord this morning as we read Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no... You shall make... For yourself, a, you should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, for that is in the or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. For, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land, and that the Lord your God, that the Lord your God is giving you. And then verse 13, our text this morning, you shall not murder. Now may God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So those commands that we just read, and those that follow after that, the, the rest of those that we'll get to in the next few weeks here, were given to God's people by God himself after they had been delivered from slavery to Egypt. We read, just read that in the, in the preamble to the, to the uh, Ten Commandments. And he's reminding Israel, his people, that he's the one responsible for taking them out of slavery, delivering them from, from slavery. That he was the one who rescued them. Right? They weren't the ones responsible for doing it on their own strength. They hadn't used their own ingenuity in some ways to negotiate their way out of, of slavery with Egypt. But it was God who graciously delivered them. And now he's revealing to them what it looks like to live in freedom from a different oppressor. He's, he's showing them now in these commandments that there's a different bondage that they're still in. And that is in their slavery to sin. And it's been God's determination ever since the beginning uh, of, of, of time since sin entered into the world that he was going to free those who are enslaved to sin, those who are shackled by sin, so they can live free. They can be free to live according to 
his glory, for his glory and for their joy as well. And, and that's the gospel perspective that we're, we've been uh, hammering home from week to week as we're going through these, these commandments. Now, all these, and all these centuries later, we're inheriting these Ten Commandments, right? But we get to look at them from a different perspective than, than, than Israel did originally, right? We, we had the lens of looking back through the Christ event, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who perfectly obeyed those moral laws, that he was sinless. And by placing our faith in, in his sinless life, his, his perfection, his righteousness is going to change the way that we view the law. It's no longer just this, this burden, um, this, this code of, of conduct that we've got to somehow live accordable, uh, according to this insurmountable obstacle. But now, we, we actually can engage with our Creator. He has made a way for us to make our way back to Him. And it's through His work, just as it was for Israel as well. And we saw many times that how... The, the law, we talked about this before, reflects God's gracious character, his full character, his holiness, and that it leads into paths of righteousness. And, and, and by humbling ourselves according to the Spirit-empowered obedience to the law, it, it, it's not a way that we earn God's favor, but it's a, it's a response to the grace that he has already shown for us in the gospel in Jesus Christ. So the law and the commandments are now, for us, a way to express our gratitude, a way to express our thanks and, and our devotion and our love for God and for those, as we'll see this morning, who are made in his image. So we're going to look at how we're going to, to understand that this morning uh, by going through the following outline. We're going we're to look at four different points that are going to help us to understand this command. Um, first, we'll look at the letter of the law. We'll look at what is the commandment and what does it mean. Seems pretty straightforward, but let's unpack that. Second, we'll look at the principle of the law. We'll see what's, what's the foundation, what's undergirding this command. What's, its, what's the reason for the command? And then thirdly, we'll look at what's the intention of the law in looking at the spirit of the law as Christ interprets it for us as the one who's a lawgiver himself. And then we'll look at the fulfillment of the law. How does Jesus himself fulfill this commandment, and how do we then, in turn, live in obedience to this command? So let's first look at the letter of the law. What does it mean? What does commandment mean? Like I said, it looks pretty straightforward, pretty standard, shortened to the point, you shall not murder. In fact, the Hebrew is only two words, no murder. Now notice I didn't say, you shall not kill, if you're familiar with the King James, or maybe maybe with some other translations of the text, you'll be familiar with the the phrase, you shall not kill, thou shalt not kill. But the Hebrew word that's that's used here is actually um, a a lot more specific than that. it's, It's more closely aligned to our English word for murder. And the reason for that is because it specifically forbids the intentional ending of an innocent human being's life. Right? So that includes premeditated murder, like homicide. But it also would include um, what we would call, in our legal system, voluntary manslaughter. Which is uh, when, when a person kills another person uh, when they're in the heat of passion. Right? So we see, in the law, there's intention that's built into what it means to take another's life. Just like it is in our legal system as well, that reflects God's law. 
But the command here also includes unintentional murder that would be caused by negligence or carelessness, right? And that covers a situation in which a person has been killed as a result of another's recklessness, right, for their life-threatening behavior. That would be, in our legal system, it would be termed involuntary manslaughter, right? So we see examples of this right in the very next chapter of Exodus. If you just turn your page over one page, Exodus chapter 21, there's an example that's given in verses 28 and 29. What do you do when a bull that's owned by one person is, kills another, kills a person, another person? So in this case, if an owner of this bull has been previously warned that their bull is an aggressor, is, it's an aggressive bull, and it has, has a history of attacking other people, and then he doesn't tie it up and restrain it, and it gets free and it kills another person, that owner is now guilty of murder. Because he knowingly did not restrain his animal that he knew was a volatile animal, right? So that's an example in the Old Testament. Example in our day would be the case of a drunk driver, let's say. When a drunk driver hits and kills somebody, um, that person didn't get into a car with the intention of killing another person. But But their act of driving while impaired we would all agree, is recklessness, right? Which, by the way, is a word I've never used for God or his redeeming love for anybody, just so you know. Just want to put that out there. Um, so, in that case, the drunk driver is culpable, right? That drunk driver is guilty for murdering another person because of his or her dangerous, reckless behavior. So, we have all sorts of laws and practices in the books that, that we abide by today that help us to... Um, avoid causing unnecessary or accidental death of another human being on the, you know, for the for the purpose you know because of negligence because of carelessness. So we so for instance we put gates around pools right, and we we have helmet laws and we have um, we have infant and, and baby and toddler car seats, and so all the principles behind all these laws that we use today are meant to preserve and protect valuable human life. And what you know it, where does it derive from? It's derived from God himself, from God's law, the author of life, right? And we see here that God not only in his word tells us this law, gives us this law to restrain evil, but he, he also gives us a reason behind it, the principle behind it, for the foundation for this command. He doesn't owe us an explanation by any means, But in his grace, he fills us in on what it means and why we should not murder, why he forbids murder. So we're gonna, we're gonna now just jump over to the principle of the law to find out what the foundation of this law is, why we ought not to murder other people. Genesis chapter one says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and, every, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed. 
you shall have for them for food. That's Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 29. And, and these verses come right at the tail end of the creation narrative, right? right? At the end of that time, or close to the end, when the triune God creates the universe in one week by the word of his power. And we read that on the sixth day of creation, that's what we just read about, after he had already created light and darkness, how he had separated them from one another as he had put the heavenly bodies up in place in the skies, after he had filled the earth with all sorts of vegetation and all sorts of animals, then in the center of of it all, he creates man and woman. And they're unlike anything else that he's created, that he's made. So human beings are, in a sense, the, the crowning jewel of God's creative work. And why is that? Well, God says, because only human beings bear his image and his likeness. They alone carry that, that as it were, this divine mark. So that means that they're, that they're in some ways that we reflect God. We're, we're like God. We represent God. It's, it's what theologians call the Imago Dei. You've probably heard it here often. We talk about it often, the Imago Dei, that we're made in the image and likeness of God. Does it mean that we're little gods? So we're not like God in that we're just like him with some kind of superpowers or um, there's not some kind of elemental piece of God in all of us that with our powers combined, you know, we're God or we can, we can do God-like things. But what it means is that we uniquely reflect God in ways that no other creature can. We could talk about hours and hours about all the numerous ways in which we're, we're, we're like God or reflect God's image. Um, something you can do in community group that would be kind of a, a fun thing to do. It's, it's, a, it's a, a God-glorifying thing to do to see what God looks like and then how we reflect him, how we don't reflect him, and maybe our moral aspects. You could th- talk about it in that way, talk about it intellectually, creatively, spiritually. We're, we're, we're not only physical, but we're spiritual creatures um, in our relational aspects. So there's lots of different things that, that it can mean. But for this morning, what, what we really want to see is, is just the point that we want to make under, that's under this law, that's undergirding this, this, this principle uh, that we should not murder, is that we understand that we are highly valued by our creator. And that means that we're fundamentally different from monkeys, from bugs, from sludge, from rocks. Because we've been made in God's image, he prizes us. He prizes human beings over and above the rest of his glorious handiwork. And that is why the, the sovereign author of life and sustainer of life treats us differently than he does the animals. We just read that he, he's given us everything that we need to, to enjoy life, to preserve life, to, to continue perpetuating life. Just looking back at, at like, like, like I said, what we just looked at, he's given us plants to feed us, to sustain, to, to, to nourish our bodies that he's made. He's given us animals to tend and fields to work in. He's given us the union of marriage for family relationships as well. And, and obviously he he's also has made us so that we can have relationship with him. And did you realize that when we, when we just take a step back and, and think about this, that, that God is that there's nobody that's more committed to the flourishing of human life than God himself. That God has gifted us, with, gifted every human being 
every human being with dignity, with value, and with worth. And, and he expects us to also value human life the same way that he does. That he made it, he's made us in a way that we can actually recognize. Did you notice this? He's made us in a way to recognize that there is the Imago Dei in other people. And it's first so that we can see his life-giving power and we can glorify him and, and, and praise him for that. But he also gives us that recognition of the Imago Dei in other people so that we could love and honor and care and respect one another as well. But we have the sixth commandment for a reason, right? We have to be told that you shall not murder because murder is a problem. Now I'm going to tell you that. I mean, we, we see that every day in the news and hear stories of it all the time. And the command that God gives is, is therefore to, to restrain evil, to, to keep sinful, evil, evil behaviors at bay. Scripture teaches us that the, that the crime of murder exists because sin exists in the world. Sin entered paradise in, in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command to, and they, they ate of the fruit that they should not have eaten from. And even with sin entering the world, that imago Dei now has been disfigured, but it's still, it's still there, it's still retained, but it's been marred. And because it's been, it's been marred and sin has entered the world, it's infected our hearts, it's corrupted us to our very nature. So now that we're, we're now callous toward God, we're rebellious toward God, and we're callous toward one another as well. And so now, by default, we dishonor God and we devalue and mistreat other human beings that were created in His image and likeness. And that includes... Unfortunately, the, the heinous act of murder. It wasn't long after sin entered the world that we actually see the very first record of murder. If you just turn from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve's son, one of their sons, murders another one of their sons. Cain murders Abel. And because of the fall, we can see, because of, and because we see that happening, we see murder happening, the entire human race is now plagued by sin. And that's what's called a, a biblical anthropology. It, it's what it means, what, what is hum, who are we as human beings, and what, is, what does it mean to be human? Biblical anthropology shows us that the Bible, at one, in one sense, teaches that God highly values and is bestowed honor and dignity and worth on all human beings, but on the other hand, we're also sinners, that we're lawbreakers. That's what sin is. Sin is lawlessness. And the consequence of that sin is death. And as the author of life, God not only has the authority to give life, but he alone has the authority to end life as well. Whether that means that he actually takes a life directly, actively, or whether he grants governments to execute murderers or, or some other way. And ultimately, everyone will be accountable who unjustly murders another innocent image bearer of God. Well, you say, well, but there are countless 
examples in scripture, right? That, that show us that there are maybe sometimes justifiable reasons that another person should, should die. And, um, some of them are, yes, justifiable. Some of them not so. And sometimes it's difficult to even tell if it is or not. And that's, and the reason is because a lot of what we have in scripture is, is narrative, which is descriptive. It tells us what happened. It doesn't, it's not prescriptive. It doesn't show, it doesn't actually, uh, necessarily tell us why or if it was a justifiable thing that this person did or it's not advocating a person's actions. So that can make it a little more difficult when you read scripture at, from time to time. Same, <clears throat> the same can be said of our news today, right? News sources, they tell us what happened. They don't necessarily tell us why or if it was warranted. This is where having, again, a God-centered theology and a proper anthropology will help us to better understand these, how to answer some of these tougher, tougher questions about life and death, right? About what's justifiable, what's not justifiable when, when, when a person's life is taken. So the, the question is, again, is it ever justifiable? And the short answer is yes. And as Phil Riken says, it kind of puts in perspective here, how do we know, how do we determine that? He says, quote, but why does God permit some forms of killing? What makes them lawful? The answer is that our goal is not the destruction of life, but its preservation, end quote. So there are situations in which it's justifiable when we're preserving life rather than actually trying to destroy life. And some of the situations are, and I'll give you, we'll give you a few examples this morning, are self-defense, capital punishment, and also warfare. So let's take a look at just each one of those just briefly. Self-defense first. Most of us would agree that there's nothing wrong and there's, only, there's everything right with defending yourself, protecting your life, and the life of somebody else from physical harm when somebody's attacking you, right? And the biblical law that we have and our own laws, you know, wisely protect the victims of, of harm, of, 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 of violence, when in their active defense, they end up, killing their attacker. Let's look at capital punishment. Capital punishment is when a government takes the life of a person as a punishment for a capital crime, such as murder. And we see that in Scripture, God actually sanctions capital punishment, just capital punishment, when it's just, done justly, it is it all the way as far back as, as when Noah, in the, in the days of Noah, even before the law was given, in the days of Noah, he says this in, in Genesis chapter 9. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man." Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. So we see now that, that God repeats his command to be fruitful, multiply, right? To, to, to allow life to flourish on earth. And he also adds meat to our diet, which is awesome because I love meat. But he also says, right, that the Imago Dei is still retained even while sin is present in the world. And the Imago Dei is the principle behind this, this explicit command now that God's given to Noah. He says, whoever sheds the blood 
of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So in other words, what's, what, what he's saying here, what we should derive from this command that God's given, is that the penalty that fits the crime of murder is death. And the reason for that is because God highly values life. Life that's made in his image. And the only way to, to make amends for murder, the only proper penalty and payment for murder is the death of the murderer. It's the most severe consequence meant for the most severe crime. It's what an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth means. The punishment must fit the crime. And millions and billions of dollars won't cover the cost of a human life. The only price for life is life itself. That also means that a lifelong time out doesn't cut it either. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you've seen one of these bumper stickers. It drives me crazy when I, when I see it now. But why do people... You probably heard this. Why do we kill people who kill people to show that killing people is wrong? Well... Now we know the answer, right? If we look at scripture, it's because God, the author of human life, tells us that human life is so valuable that the only proper penalty for murdering an innocent person is ending the murderer's life. That won't fit on a bumper sticker, right? But usually the best answers don't fit on a bumper sticker. Bumper sticker. And so God expects us, his people, but also Governments that are placed under his authority to protect human life. And according to Romans 13, 3 and 4, we can see that he has given the governments under his authority, right, to enforce justice. And that includes the death penalty. When a government executes murderers, they are acting justly by preserving, protecting the life of their other fellow citizens that that they're governing. So God has granted governments, we see, jurisdiction to enforce justice in that way now are there times when the state or the government gets it wrong yes absolutely right, the government is made up of people people as we just said are, are sinful we, we make mistakes and so in those situations where there's an innocent life in stake we should stand up for innocent life and protect that and we should call out governments we should call out leaders by name right when they're acting unjustly We should advocate for the innocent, but we should never resort to violence when justice isn't done. Like revenge. Revenge is never an option for the Christian. Romans chapter 12. It's clear. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Even as appealing as it might seem, especially when when your emotions are running, when we watch movies like Death Wish or The Equalizer, we kind of, we root for, the, for, for justice to happen. But revenge is essentially, we should be reminded as, as believers, as Christians, that revenge is, is denying God's sovereignty, right? It's losing sight of the fact that there's an ultimate judge, there's an ultimate courtroom. And that judge will, on the very final day, judge justly. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Nothing escapes his view. Nothing that happens here is outside his view. So when justice has not been properly served here on earth, we can know, we can, stand, again, stand up for, for, for 
uh, and advocate for, in, for the innocent victims. But we also know that when it can't happen here on earth, we know that the righteous judge, Jesus Christ, will one day set all things right. Amen? So let's talk about warfare. This is where it gets a little bit tricky. Because the answer, is it ever justifiable to, to kill during war? It, dep- it really it depends. We can't, we can't even go to Scripture sometimes in, in a sense to, to look at examples there and, and derive principles from, from them. You have to be very careful when we're reading Scripture in the Old Testament. Um, for centuries, the Old Testament, uh, the, the Isra- Israel was under a theocracy. It means that they were directly governed by God himself. And if you were here a little while ago, not too long, we, we did uh, a series on First and Second Samuel. We see that transition from the theocracy into a monarchy where God places a king to rule over Israel. And even in those days, when God's placed uh, a king to rule over his people, it gets a little bit shady there too. Is, is some of their wars, were they just, were they not just? We don't, we don't always know. It's hard to tell. How much more today, right? In our secular culture with our secular governments. And a lot of the answer it revolves around the issue of just war. Just war theory. What, what, what is a just war? It answers questions like, or tries to answer questions like, uh, what's the purpose of this war? Is it to, is it to defend peace? Is it, is it a noble cause? It, it, is the nation, it, which nation is the provoker? Which nation is the defender? Is, is the force that's being applied, uh, is it going to save more lives than it's, than it's taking? And these can all obviously be very difficult questions. Sometimes we don't know all the answers. I just watched a, a movie called the Hid- A Hidden Life. I don't know if any of you have seen that, but it's a, it's a true story of Franz, and I'm going to probably get his name wrong here, Franz Joggerstatter, an Austrian peasant farmer who lived during the, the rise of the Third, Third Reich. He was a Christian conscientious objector. He refused to take the Hitler oath. He refused to serve for Nazi Germany. It's a three hours long movie, but it's worth every minute to watch that movie for a little while. And, and I would say, tell me if you don't weep by the end of it like I did. And I can't say that about very many movies. And Franz thought it was better to go to prison, face a death penalty, than to kill for Adolf Hitler. I think he made the right choice. And I only hope that I would do the same thing if I was put under the pressure that he was put under. So that's warfare. Well, what about other forms of, of murder? Are, are there other forms that, of murder other than uh, that, uh, that we can talk about that Scripture forbids either explicitly or in principle? Yes, there are a few we'll hit this morning. Um, some of them are a little more controversial topics, but suicide. Suicide is, is essentially self-murder. And yes, it's, it is a sin. It's not the unpardonable sin, but it is a sin to take your own life. And we see multiple examples of it in Scripture, in uh, Judges, in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings. We see it in Matthew, uh, the most um, popular, or more, I should say the most famous one, or infamous, um, is uh, Judas Iscariot, who hanged himself after betraying Jesus. Every time that it's mentioned in Scripture, it is always cast in a negative light. And we've got to recognize also that there are many reasons why people would consider suicide, including Depression, chronic pain, mental illness, 
So we have to be careful. We should be, uh, as we navigate these waters, and, and we also should recognize that there's help for those who need it in the form of counseling, maybe medication, those kind of things. But we should also realize, I think we should be reminded that if we believe that the gospel frees us from the power of sin, that also includes the sin of suicide. Right? We should remember that, that God will never put us in a position where the only option, the only choice is to break his moral law. And so, by meditating on the gospel, that's going to remind us that when I feel that my life is pointless, God values me. He cherishes me as his son or his daughter. That there's joy knowing that I have been eternally united to Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And there's coming a day, because of that, that I will be free from all sin. And I'll be free from the struggle of sin. And so, if you're one this morning who may be struggling with suicidal thoughts, then, then please reach out to one of the pastor elders here. We, we'd love to talk, talk to you. We'd love to help you and walk through that with you. What about euthanasia? Euthanasia is essentially suicide, uh, but it's uh, instead of dealing yourself the death blow, you, you have somebody else do it for you, assisted suicide. And it's usually done by administering some kind of a drug to the body. But um, let me just say that right up front that euthanasia is not the same thing as, as ending life-preserving treatments and, and providing palliative care or, or, uh, or comfort to the loved ones who are, who are in, the, in the, the last moments of their lives. That, that's actually treating somebody with dignity, with value, with honor, with respect in their final moments. So, but that's not euthanasia. Euthanasia is directly terminating a life, which again, we read in Scripture, is only God has the right to do. And probably now the, the most controversial topic, what about abortion? Let me say this unequivocally, and this comes, I can speak for the entire pastoral team here, but plain and simple, abortion is murder. Abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being, a baby, a child, a person, at his or her most vulnerable stage of life. And unfortunately, all too often, the, the, the truth, that truth gets is clouded with polemics and with politics and, and with words like choice or viability or fetus. But scripture teaches us that the unborn are Babies, our children, our people that possess the image of God whose life is worthy of respect and protection. And let me just say that there's never been a, a better time in history where we can see more certain of the fact that biological life begins at conception. The Bible has always taught that. Let's just be clear about that. But science is now getting to the point where we're able to even more closely verify that truth. Some examples in scripture of where we see that the unborn life is treated with dignity, value, and respect as a, as a person. Exodus chapter 21, the very next chapter that we're from, from where we are now. We see that God, God's law affords an unborn child the same rights and protections as the mother. One of the very famous psalms, Psalm 139, 
13, verses 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are, are your works. My soul knows it very well. There are lots of other examples in scripture we can look at. And I don't have the time this morning to go through all those. But just, let me just also remind us all that Jesus Christ himself, the son of God, entered into creation through a mother's womb. So we see that unborn human life is is worthy of all the dignity and the respect of an image bearer of God because they are precisely an image bearer of God. And that's why we partner with ministries like Alpha Pregnancy Care Center, we, we want to help mothers to understand that, that, that their baby that's in their womb was created by God, valued by God, loved by God, and loved by God's people. And so if, if you're here and you're wondering about that or, or, or you're considering terminating your pregnancy, please, reach, again, reach out to one of the pastor elders. We, we would love to talk to you and we're here to help you. But I should also point out that we honor all life and no matter what stage, no matter what circumstance, right? Justice for Orphans, Care Portal, and other ministries that we support, that we're involved in, that helps children in the foster care system that need help. Venture Church's Food Pantry distributes food to families in our community that, that need help. The Capital City Rescue Mission feeds, shelters, the homeless, those struggling with addiction. So, so, so I hope you see here a trend, right? That, that God's people are called to not just do no harm. They're not just called to avoid murder, but we're here to preserve and protect and, and to perpetuate life physically, spiritually, emotionally. And God has spoken very clearly on this, on this matter of life. It, he created it. He is sovereign over it. He alone gives life. He alone takes life. And we are now given the responsibility the, the privilege, right? All of us to, to love, to cherish, to care for life at all stages, in all circumstances. And when we turn our back on those who are in need, when we treat others with disrespect, when we store up hate in our hearts toward other people, we're also guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. And that's what Jesus points out. When he was walking the earth, the religious leaders had, at that point in time of his ministry, reduced the law into just a strict code of conduct. Right? And they had become so good at following the letter of the law that they actually invented hundreds of more. Because by doing that, and they could, they could keep those laws, then they could look to everybody else like they were, like they were perfect, right? that they were holy. But Jesus saw right through their veneer, right? Right through their religious veneer. He saw that inwardly, they were full of murderous thoughts and intentions. In the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus points this, points this out. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says, you fool, 
will be liable to the hell of fire. So, is Jesus changing God's law here? No. Actually, Jesus himself is the lawgiver, right? And, and he actually, he's, he's affirming what the Old Testament law says, it's, that, it's, that it's God's law, but he's now interpreting it properly. He's bringing clarity to what was there. He's bringing clarity to its meaning. That murder is, is, is a heinous sin, but also the sin of anger and hate are its cousins. And he's saying it, reminding us and saying that sin begins in the heart. And so when, when we burn with anger and hate toward others, we're doing violence against another image bearer of God, but we're also doing violence toward God himself, who made that person. And so rather than reflecting God's image like we were made to do, we are more like the devil, who God says was a murderer from the beginning. And so to attack others physically or to slander them, to demean them, to store up bitterness in our our hearts, is to attack God himself who made that person. And God doesn't take it lightly. Jesus said the the consequences, we just read, the consequences are the fires of hell. Obeying the sixth commandment then is, again, not just avoiding murder, doing no harm, don't take another's life. It means that we are responsible for the physical and spiritual well-being of others. If that sounds familiar, then it should. Sounds a lot like the great commandment, right? Sounds a lot like the Great Commission. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. It also means that we go into the world and we proclaim the gospel in word and in good deeds to those who are in peril of death, of eternal death. And it also means for us as well, in our hearts, to quote the Puritan John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So now let's look at the fulfillment of the law just briefly as we, as we close now. We look about how we can effectively kill our sin. How can we obey the sixth commandment? And the, the quick answer is, it's bad news, we can't. It's impossible. On our own, it's, the law does a, we can't do it. The law does a good job of exposing our sin and, and showing us our inability. But that should also then, the law should also drive us to a savior, to somebody who can rescue us from our predicament. And the good news is that the holy lawgiver is also the gracious life giver himself, that, that he grants eternal life to, un, to repentant sinners. The one whose fury that provoked, that's provoked by our sin is also the one who, who grants forgiveness to those who repent of their sin and trust in his son Jesus Christ, including murderers. 1 Peter chapter 2 says that he, that is Jesus, committed no sin Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the whole law, including the sixth commandment. Not only did he not murder, but he actually never uttered a hateful word or carried a bitterness, carried bitterness in his heart. Even when he suffered at the hands of murderous sinners. We should have been on the cross, right? But God's word tells us that in love, Jesus suffered on our behalf. That his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave now has saved our lives. He took the, the penalty that we deserved and his eternal, his et- atoning work saved us from sin, from Satan, and from eternal death. That's hell. And now that we have been freed from the power of sin, that the Holy Spirit has now, is now dwelling in us, in believers. And the righteousness of Christ has now been imputed to us. So, so God has exchanged our sin for his righteousness. So now that we, we find life in God's moral law, it now becomes our duty and our joy to obey the commands. Not, because we know that it's going to bring glory to the one who made us and who redeemed us. Now we don't obey perfectly. We're all works in progress, right? Amen? And the truth of God's word, when it's applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, over time will form Christ in us. Until we wait, finally wait for that day when Christ will return. And at that point, all tears will be wiped away Sin will have, will have been destroyed. Death will be, have been destroyed. And we will finally be holy as he is holy. And we will finally be able to enjoy Jesus Christ himself with him forever in his presence. So now as I close, let me just ask a few questions for us this morning. How do we treat others? Are you struggling with, with bitterness or, or hate or envy in your heart toward others? Do you look down at other people? Are you, are you quick to slander or demean other people that you disagree with? In, in, our, in our climate we're in right now, with those who you disagree with politically, do you demean them? Have you sought their forgiveness, those that you have slandered or have treated wrongly? I just with all of us that we turn to Christ that, that he will be the one who will heal us from our hate and forgive us for our sin do you ignore those who are around you that you know need help need protection, need care or maybe need some need love just remember the gospel right, that, that we were unworthy of love we were unworthy of love and Christ pursued us with his love amen Father, thank you again for your word. We thank you for its life-giving power. We thank you that you are the author, sustainer of life and that you grant life and that you, it's your desire that human life should flourish in every way. And that's why you came to, to, to fix what was 
most problematic in our hearts and with us physically and spiritually, our, our need for you. We could never be healed of our, on our own, that we needed the, the healing power of your love. We needed the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we, we glory in that this morning. We cling to our hope in Christ. And uh, we, we just ask that you would just uh, uh, forgive us for our sins Forgive us for our, our murderous intentions, Lord, and that you would help us to see others as those who are made in your image and in your likeness, and that that would cause us to glory in you, to proclaim your, your love and your goodness, and, and to glory in your life-giving power, but it should also help us to love and cherish and care for those who are around us. So let that uh, change our hearts this morning, and, and Holy Spirit, empower us to do that and to proclaim the mystery of the gospel that's now been made uh, clear for all people to hear and to know. And may we uh, articulate it well in the way that we live our lives in the words that we use. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we just relish in all that Christ has done.